the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We're looking today at chapter 8 and verses 8 through 10, mostly really just 8 and 9, just barely touch on 10, I'll read that verse, but we'll probably save most of that for next week. Over the course of our study of this book, we get to the end, toward the end of it now, we've seen how the church is presented to us in this song as the bride of Christ. This way of presenting him was a wonderful addition to redemptive revelation, to God's revealing of his salvation to his people. And it was added here, this way of looking at the Lord as our husband was added here in the Song of Solomon. It's a very delightful and helpful way to depict and to understand the love that he has for us and the love that we have for him. It's revealed here to us. Prior to the writing of it, the church's relationship had been referred to in a multitude of ways uh, as a son to a father. Israel is my son, you know, I called out of Egypt. As a servant to a master, as subjects to a king, as priest to God. But once this song was written, it was also, the church's relationship was also known is that of a bride to a husband. And after the writing of this song, the prophets and the apostles took up this theme as one that they seemed to find very helpful and that they loved very much. They take it up again and again. Notable examples include Psalm 45, that I think was probably written in response to this song, after this this picture of marriage to to Christ was given to the church. Isaiah picks up on it in his writings quite a lot. Then you have Hosea who deals with the people who have rejected the Lord as an unchaste virgin, not a virgin, as an unchaste woman, as a harlot who has gone away. And then you have Ezekiel who refers to that sort of thing as well and talks about how God first came and took his bride. Uh, Then John the Baptist comes and he announces that he's there speaking about the bridegroom who is to come and redeem his bride, the church. He's come to bring his kingdom. And then you have the Apostle Paul that we, we read in 2 Corinthians 11, how I betrothed you to Christ as a chaste virgin. Then you have the Apostle John who speaks of the final consummation of the church's marriage to Christ as um, Isaiah and Jesus had done before him with the, uh, the, the great wedding. Jesus, of course, told parables about the great wedding when we all go to him. Um, so this was, all, this was all very encouraging. As we draw near to the end of this book, the Song of Solomon, we have seen the bride's delight and security in her relationship with Jesus as her husband escalate. Her delight and security have increased as she's gone through various experiences. She is seen now at the end of the book as a very happy bride leaning on her beloved Jesus who brings her out of the barren wilderness into his house and she's nearer now than she was before. Last week we saw her asking him to please love her forever, to set his love as a seal upon his heart, to set her as a seal upon his heart and on his arm, because, of course, 
the, the, the heart would show that he cherished her from within and the arm or the hand would show that he, he works for her, that he's, he's committed to serving her. Uh, so we, we saw her, her asking for that, that he would delight in her in both of those ways. She described the love that was there, the affection that he had for her as a love that was unquenchable and that was very precious. It's a very lovely passage there. So we, the bride, when we have come to enjoy that love of Jesus Christ and to have that deeper trust in him, how does that affect us? Well, it makes us turn to others. When we come to delight in his love ourselves, then we begin to look, think of others. That's the effect that it has. It doesn't make us selfish. It doesn't draw us in. It causes us to look out. That's how it works when you have the assurance of his love. You yearn for your little sister, that she might come to enjoy that love that you share with Christ as your husband. Already she has spoken, the bride has spoken several times to those who are called the daughters of Jerusalem, hasn't she? Encouraging them to seek this love that she herself is already enjoying. To be patient and to accept no substitutes for this love. No shortcuts. It takes time for it to grow and develop as we lean on our beloved and we see him through bringing us through the wilderness again and again, encouraging us, refreshing us, bringing us the word of encouragement that we need, working in us, then we grow in, in grace and in our comfort and delight in him. And uh, she's saying to these, these young ones, like, don't, don't go after some emotionalism or some kind of a, a substitute thing, a shortcut that maybe modifying Christ to be something that you're more comfortable with, an idol of some kind. Don't listen to the false teachers that tell you that Christ is like this or that rather than how he's revealed in the word. So, so she's telling them to be patient, you know, with no, no substitutes or shortcut. Wait for the real thing. Now, as we look at this, though, we have here a, 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 a sister wanting her sister to come and enjoy her husband with her. Now, we've talked about that. There's nothing inappropriate here. I've explained to you how the bride is different from other brides because she wants everyone to come and experience the love of her husband with her. Uh, his bride, that's because the bride, Christ's bride is one bride, but she's made up of many members. And those members want to help each other grow in their love for him. They want to bring more people to become part of the bride, to become members of the bride from all nations, to come and join them and become members who join them in making up the bride, the one bride. Keep in mind, marriage is an allegory of our physical relationship with Christ. This book is an allegory, maybe you should say. It's, a, it's an analogy. Just as the Jews, they were wrong when Christ said to them, unless you eat my flesh, then you, can have, you, you, you cannot have eternal life. And they said, can this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, that, that's not what he, he was talking about, a spiritual way. He's the bread that, that nourishes us in our, as we trust in him. And just as it would be wrong for us to think that when he says that he's the door, that he's a, you know, a, wooden, a wooden plank on hinges that, uh, that, that opens and closes, I'm the door. 
like, okay, well, where's the door? Let's go put a door in the building. We'll say, this is the door. This is Christ. And we'll, you know, we'll bow to the door and talk about how, how great the door is. No, no. It's, it's an it's a, it's a analogy of, of how he opens the way for us to get to God. And so also it's wrong when he's presented as our husband to think that it's talking about having sexual relations with Christ or something. Sexual relations and marriage is used to talk about the intimacy that we have with Christ. It's the best way to illustrate that love. It's the highest kind of intimacy that we have on the earth when it's in its proper usage and proper place. And what better analogy could we have than that to talk about the love of Christ as a husband for his people. There's so many, so much richness that comes out of this. Very, very glad that the Song of Solomon um, introduces this, this uh, picture to us. It's a, a beautiful picture from which we can derive so much good. So when we see the bride in our text today, concerned for her little sister, understand that she wants her little sister to grow to spiritual maturity so she can experience intimacy with Jesus like she does. She wants to, her to share in that same experience. So listen as I read this passage to you. Again, it is the Song of Solomon in chapter 8, beginning in verse 8. Here is the word of God. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I am a wall and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and infallible word. So what we find in this text, I apologize for not having an, an outline today. My, my power went out and I didn't have time to uh, type everything up. I had to write out a lot of stuff by hand this week. But uh, that's why I don't have an outline for you. But here I'll give you an outline, uh, just a brief summary of the three main things we'll be looking at. I do that sometimes anyway. First of all, we're going to see in this text, we find in this text an important observation that's from verse 8. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. An important observation. Second, an excellent question. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? An excellent question is asked, I believe, by the bride. And then third, an encouraging answer from him. If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door... We will enclose her with boards of cedar. So those are the three things that we'll be looking at. Again, an important observation, an excellent question, and an encouraging answer. And when I speak about who is speaking, I've talked to you about that before. If you have like your King James, your new King James Bible, it has the little headings. It says, you know, this is the brothers. It says here, it talks about different ones who are speaking. That part is not inspired. That's not in the original text. That was just added by the translators, and they're just giving their interpretation of it. And believe me, there are many different interpretations about who is speaking in these different places. And I believe that what I just said to you is the, the, the best interpretation. But if it's not, if um, I'm wrong, it's 
not really a, a real big deal because what I'm saying to you, all the truths that I'm bringing to you are truths that are rooted and grounded in the Word of God. So even if I'm wrong about who's speaking here or there, uh, the truths that are brought forth should be edifying to you because I'm preaching God's Word to you, and God's Word is effective in those that receive it with faith. So just keep that in mind as we, as we go forward. So let's look at these, these um, three things that we've just seen for our edification and encouragement in Christ. The first one, an important observation. Song of Solomon 8.8, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. Here we, the bride of Christ, having grown in our relationship with Christ, having grown up to maturity in our relation with Christ, recognize that there are many who have not yet done so, who have not matured in Christ. When you grow in Christ, it is a good thing. And I think we need to say that because you know him better than you did before. You love him more. You lean on him more than you did when you first came to Christ. Now, you were, of course, thrilled and excited when you first came to Christ. Your sins were forgiven. It was a new thing if you had a conversion, you know, when you were uh, older. But uh, it, it's, uh, you've grown since then. If, if, if you're mature now, you weren't mature on the first day that you believed. You love his ways more, rejecting the ways of the world more than you did before. Remember when I was first converted that, you know, some of the ways of the world were still very attractive to me, much more than they should have been, and that I had to grow and mature so that those ways, and, and there was a change over the years so that some of those things that were so attractive and appealing aren't anymore. Now, this doesn't mean there's none that, no temptation, I still have to fight against sin, but some of those things don't have the appeal that they used to have. We become more holy and more conformed to his ways. We become more obedient more fully obedient to, more willing to suffer for his sake because we see how much he has done for us as we grow and go on with him. You are more secure with him, more sure of him, knowing that you can trust him, more certain of your hope that he has promised to you, that he will bring you to his father's house in glory. You're more desirous than ever to live in his house. You, you, you know, you used to think, well, oh, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. I'll have to leave all this. You don't, and you get to where you don't think that anymore, <laughs> where, where it's a great desire for you. But when you grow, you realize that there are others who have not yet grown, who have not grown, maybe for various reasons. That's what's depicted here. A little sister with no breasts. What is that? It's a child. She's not mature yet. She hasn't come to the age of maturity. She's not able to enjoy his love the way you do. Now, she can enjoy his love, but not the way you do as a mature woman who is a bride of Christ. She is still a babe on milk, and she can enjoy the hugs and the kisses and all of those kind of things. She doesn't know, though, the delights of marital love because she's still a child. This is something that you ought to notice and that you ought to speak of. You need to be aware of and concerned about those who are not mature 
wanting to bring them to maturity. Don't pretend that we're all the same. We, we live in a day when a lot of people can kind of say, oh, I don't want to make people feel bad that they're not just the same as me. Well, no, they're not the same. You see, you destroy hope of growth when you do that. Because, I mean, if you're just going to be like you are when you first were converted, then there's no hope of growth. But if you can say to someone, you know, I've walked with the Lord all these years and he's been faithful to me. So I've leaned on him. He's brought me through this and brought me through that and brought me through. What an encouragement that is to a young believer. I remember when I was exhorting a young man who was going away from the Lord one time and Tim Hortons and this elderly lady had the Bible open and I was, I was probably pointing at him and, and, and tell him. And, and she came by and she said, she said, young man. I've walked with the Lord for years. You listen to what he's saying. <laughs> and she went over and sat down with her coffee. <laughs> and he looked up and said, Wow, <laughs> I guess God must have sent her. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there, there's hope for growth. You know, here is an elderly woman who had walked with the Lord and a young man that's not sure whether he wants to walk with the Lord. We should be growing and maturing our whole life. Now certainly... We have to be aware of pride with these things. Oh, I've grown more than you have. I, I remember uh, in our church a number of years ago when there were a couple of, two couples that had been converted around the same time. They were kind of in competition with each other. It was kind of funny, you know, because they'd be like, you know, well, so-and-so, you know, they were doing, they were watching too much TV. And, well, well they were doing, you know, they were kind of, it was almost like it wasn't so much out of a concern as it was that, um, you know, we're, we're doing better than they are kind of thing. And, you know, I had to kind of, kind of deal with that. But we don't want to deny the differences between maturity and no maturity. Because you see, this is especially a problem today because of the mentality of our present age, the world. And the world has sanctioned envy. I talked about that not long ago. That envy is a perfectly acceptable thing now. If someone has more than you, you should resent that. And you should be envious of them. We talk about privilege and things like that. It is a privilege to have walked with Christ for a long time and to have a maturity in Christ that other people don't have. And we're supposed to be ashamed of that. Oh, oh, I, 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 I don't want to be privileged. No, you should be thankful if that's true. Because he does bring people to maturity. And again, it gives other people hope that walk with Christ and he will bring you to maturity. And you see, the Bible talks about this all the time. It, it acknowledges this distinction between those who are mature and those that are not. This is one passage that does it. The Bible often speaks frankly of these differences. Let's talk about the difference in maturity, different ways that people, one is more mature than others. Some are immature because they are children. Okay, in actual age, they are children. So for in the scriptures in Genesis 18, 19, God had revealed himself to Abraham and then he had children. And what does God say to him? He says, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Abraham had maturity because he was the father and they didn't even know these things. And so he had to nurture them in the things of the Lord. This is where 
the command to parents to bring their children up in the nurture and fear of the Lord, where that originated really, I mean, it was before that too, of course, but in the covenant that when God first called Abraham, he established that this should go on from generation to generation. It's what we sang about in Psalm 78, that the fathers mustn't hide by not telling their children. What if Abraham had done that? Then future generations, as it says, would not know the way of the Lord. So Ephesians 6, 4, when we get to the New Testament, it, it It emphasizes these things for now that Christ has come. It says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Why? Because they're immature. They need to be nurtured and brought up in the way of the Lord. That's the first way that some are immature because they're children. Some are immature because they are new to the faith. They're children in the faith. They might be 80 years old, but they just came to know the Lord. They're just getting started. Paul made a point whenever he went to a city and people came to believe that had not believed before. He made a point of going back to those places. Why? So that he could teach them, so that they could be rooted and grounded in the word, so that they could be established, so that he could encourage and help them. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, he he said that he sent Timothy, our brother, and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to do what for the Thessalonians? To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Paul was always very eager to do that. We'll look at that a little bit more later. Some are immature. Third reason is because they have not been taught sound doctrine. Jesus accused the scribes and Pharisees of stunting the growth of the people they taught, of even leading them away from the Lord so that they became children of hell because of the stuff that they taught them. And, you know, he, he was very, he, he rebuked them sharply for that. Paul asked the Galatians how they had been hindered. What had happened to the Galatians? He says in Galatians 3, 1 through 3, O foolish Galatians, Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you go and get circumcised and do a bunch of um, of rituals of the Old Testament and feast days and all kinds of different things? Is that how you got the Holy Spirit? No. It was by trusting in the finished work of Christ, the Redeemer, and what he had done on the cross, believing the gospel. So he says, are you so foolish, Galatians? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Are you grow, do you grow by doing these, these Old Testament rituals, or do you grow by faith in Jesus Christ? And of course, it's by faith in Jesus Christ, it's by leaning on him, it's by walking with him. He's, he's straightening them out. But their, their growth had been stunted. And you see, a person could be in a church for, for 50 years and never grow because they didn't have sound teaching. They could still be an immature baby Christian because they have not been taught the truth of the gospel. Fourth, some, immature, some are immature because they have not been diligent. They may have had sound teaching, but they didn't make use of it. Hebrews 5.12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God that you, 
you have come to need milk and not solid food. The Hebrews, they were wavering. They were thinking about going away from Christ because of the persecutions and things that they had. And so therefore, they weren't being diligent in in following Christ and receiving his word and walking in it. So they were hindered and they were immature. He goes on, verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the work of righteous in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. You're baby Christians. But solid food, he says, belongs to those belongs to those who are of full age or who are mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern to discern both good and evil. They can distinguish between right and wrong, between what pleases God and what doesn't please God. Fifth, some are immature because they have been rebellious. Now, that's similar to what we just saw, where they've been slack and negligent, but rebellion is a little bit different. Compare Israel under Moses to Israel under Joshua. There's a great difference, isn't there? You might think, I mean, was Moses not a very good teacher, you know, and Joshua was a really good teacher? No, Moses was, was an outstanding teacher, maybe more prominent than Joshua, to be sure. But what, what were the people like under Moses? They were rebellious. They refused even to go into the promised land, the very work that God had. He was bringing them out of the wilderness in the, in the type to go into the promised land, and they utterly refused to go. And then in Joshua's day, time to go in the promised land. Okay, let's go. They were ready to go. They went across. There were a few glitches, you know, I mean, Achan or somebody. But as a nation, they were following the Lord then. They went from immaturity to maturity. There was a difference in them. And the ones were hindered because of rebellion. Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their rebellion. It kept them from being able to make progress with Christ. He had to call them to repentance. I had an assignment when I was in seminary in my homiletics, my preaching class, that I had to preach on a series on the, uh, I was assigned this, on the problems at Corinth. So, you know, you go through and then, okay, here there's, no church discipline here. Here, there, there's the um, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus thing. They, they were filled with all kinds of problems. There was rebellion in them. They, they, were, they, were, they were getting drunk at the Lord's table. You know, there, was, there were problems at Corinth that hindered their growth. Their rebellion hindered their growth. And then finally, the last one, some are immature and even more than immature because they have yet to hear the gospel. They are elect, but they are yet to be called. The Lord has sent us to make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's what we're called to do, to bring the nations to maturity in Christ is really the goal, to teach them to observe all things that he's commanded. Isn't that the same, similar to what Abraham was told to do with his, his household? See, we command them in the way of the Lord that they may keep the way of the Lord to observe all things that I have commanded, Jesus says. He has many sheep, we're told, that are not of this fold. These are our little sisters. You know, Samaria is referred to as a little sister to Israel. And there's these different nations that God is calling and and we go to them. We are to yearn for these sheep to enjoy the relationship that we enjoy with Christ. Remember Paul with his own brethren according to the flesh who had forsaken the Lord in 
Romans 10.1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And then he talked about how earnest he was for their salvation. So you see that we, the bride, do well to recognize that we have a sister who has no breasts, who is not mature. We shouldn't be ignoring that, that there are people in the church that are not mature. And they need to be mature. So so next we see that the bride asks an excellent question. It's our second thing to look at. An excellent question. What is it from the middle of verse 8? Song of Solomon 8.8. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? Now, what does this mean? We need to, there's some customs here and things of their day that are maybe not as familiar to us. So let's talk about this a little bit. In those days, a young woman was said to be spoken for when she was betrothed to a man to, to be her husband. Okay, betrothed to be married. Betrothal is similar to engagement that we have, but it's also somewhat different because uh, like if you broke a betrothal or if you went with another man when you were betrothed to one man, it was considered adultery. And we don't consider it adultery if someone breaks an engagement because there haven't really been vows that have been made. Whereas with a betrothal, there were vows. It's kind of interesting because in our modern weddings, we do the betrothal and the wedding in the same service. Like you have that part at the beginning when you say, will you have this woman to be your wife? Will you take this man to be your husband? We say, yes, I will. Who gives this one, right? And then the the agreement is made. The betrothal is right there, but we only have betrothal for like, you know, 10 minutes or something. And then we have the the, the wedding vows and, you know, for better, for worse, or for sickness, health, all that kind of thing. So we do the betrothal, and then we do the wedding vows all together at once. But they didn't do that. And even the, uh, when the Westminster Confession was written, they talk about betrothal and about adultery from one that is betrothed. So, so they had more of a betrothal as well. Maybe it's something to, to think about. I don't know. But uh, those cultural things are kind of interesting. What's... Uh, What's a mandated thing in that regard? Certainly we have all the elements, though. But in any case, um, the Bible sometimes, when it speaks of our relationship with Christ, we've seen this as we've gone through the Song of Solomon, sometimes it presents our relationship with Christ as one who is already fully married because we even have children by Him. You know, the Lord who is your maker is your husband, and the barren woman now has got more children than the woman that has a husband. So that, you know, that's the way it's presented sometimes. But more often, and I think the overall presentation of Scripture, and it doesn't matter that it changes because it's an analogy, right? You can use it in different ways. But the overall picture of redemptive history is that we are betrothed now. We have come to Christ. We have confessed Him. We have made vows. We have taken Him to be our husband. He's, he's agreed to be our husband. We've agreed to be his wife, and we belong to him in that way. But we're waiting for the last day when he comes back for us, and we're then presented as his bride, and there is the great wedding feast, and there is the completion and the consummation of the marriage. That's the way that it's, it's typically portrayed. So we're in this time of betrothal now, Talk about a five or ten minute betrothal before in our modern weddings. This is a really long betrothal that goes on for years and years for the bride of Christ until that day 
when we, uh, when we meet our Savior. So the, so the question here expresses a concern about how we will help our little sister in connection with her betrothal in the day that she is spoken for. She is not mature, and we want to help her to become mature. We want her to do what? If we boil it all down, we want her to learn to lean on Christ alone. What we saw the bride doing, coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. In the day that she has, is spoken for, certainly includes the time after she professes faith doesn't it? Once she's spoken for, the day in which she is spoken for goes on from her betrothal until the wedding, from profession till full marriage when Christ returns. But in the day can also be understood as, in a more general way, as regarding the day when she is spoken for or betrothed. What shall we do for our sister in relation to the day when she is spoken for in connection with that, with that betrothal. In other words, it could include both preparing her for betrothal as well as leading her to maturity in her relationship after she is betrothed. Again, the, these analogies can be used in different ways. So in Titus, uh, for example, in Titus 2, 3, and 4, the older women are to admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. In that case, they're already married to their husbands. And then these older, mature women are helping them to be better in their, um, in, in their wedding, you know, in, in their uh, relationship with their husband. <clears throat> okay, so I said that this question, what shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? that I just explained to you, that this is an excellent question. How is it an, extra, an excellent question? Well, first, it's an excellent question because it is spoken out of a love for our sister. We love her, and we want her to experience intimacy with Jesus like we do. Jesus is very pleased when we love our brothers, or in this case, our little sister, He's very pleased about that. It's a mark of maturity to love our brothers and sisters. In fact, it's a mark of being a Christian. (laughs) If we don't love our brothers and sisters, it shows that we may not be a believer at all. We should also love unbelievers in the gospel that we desire to come and be saved and to enjoy this saving experience in this walk with Christ with us so that we call them and we urge them. Jonah was wrong to not want the Ninevites to hear because you might be merciful to them and, and you know, they might repent if, you, if I go and warn them like you told me to do. Now, it's understandable somewhat because these people were cruel. I mean, they had invaded the land of, of, God, of Jonah's people and you know, they would fillet people alive and things like that and pile up heads of their leaders out in front of the gates. And they, they were wretched people. And, and Jonah was like, I'm not, I don't want to tell those people. I don't want to warn them. Just go on and, and burn them. You know, just deal with them. And I was like, no, I, I, want to, I love these people. I want to see them repent. He wants us to, to have this, this love and care. Second, 
It's an excellent question, okay? It's excellent because it shows her love for her little sister and her desire for those that, uh, to come to, to maturity or to come to faith, period. Second, it's an excellent question because it's spoken out of a deep love for Christ. This honors him. We praise the things that we love. I mean, if you find a really good place to eat, really good food, uh, vitamins that really work well for you or something like that, you tell other people about it because you want to share it with them. And when you do that, you honor whatever it is that you're talking about. Say, oh, this is a great thing. Look at this. And you tell them all about it. That's what you do with the things that you love and delight in. That's what we do with Christ. When we love and delight in him, when we have leaned on him, when we've walked with him, when we've served, we're like that lady I told about in the Tim Hortons. We come and say, this is really important. You need to listen to this. You need to take this off. And it honors Christ. So it's an excellent question because it comes out of a love and a delight that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that they might praise him too. He's worthy of praise. Oh, that they might see his glory and his excellence. That's our great desire. It honors him for us to delight in him like that. Third is an excellent question because it is a practical question. What is the question? We want to know what we can do for our little sister. Love is defective if it stops at well-wishing. Now, it can feed our pride a lot. We can say, oh, I just love people so much. I care about everyone, and I want to see everyone do so well, and I want things to go well for them, and we never do a thing for them. The Bible says that's not love. What, is, what good is that? You've got all these well-wishing, but you never go and do anything for anyone. What can I do for my little sister? She said, she's not mature. What can we do? She said, see, that's a very different question than, oh, I love her so much. I hope that she'll, you know, yeah, right. You know, are you going to do anything? Do you, are you, is there any practicality here? Real love finds ways to express love to others. It finds ways to do good to them and show love to them. It can't sit idle. Because love acts. It's busy and it's creative. You say, oh, I'm not very creative. Well, you're not very loving then. You need to find ways to love people. Fourth, it is an excellent question because it looks to Christ for help. It doesn't say, Lord, what shall I do to help my little sister? But it says, what shall we do to help our little sister? Here is one who knows what it means to lean on Jesus. That's, she's mature, and that's what a mature person does. They come out of the wilderness leaning on Jesus. Here is one who knows that without him, she can do nothing. John fifteen five. Jesus told us to abide in him because he said, without me, you can do nothing. This also reflects our understanding of our union with Christ so that he takes our sisters as his sister. And we take his sisters as our sister. This is our sister. When I got married, I had got new relatives, not just my wife, but her family became part of my family that I care for. I, have, I got a whole bunch of, well, there were only a few at that time, but nephews and uh, nieces and things like that that uh, became part of my family. Jesus, our husband, is pleased with this question. He shows his pleasure with this question that is such an excellent question by asking, uh, uh, I mean, 
by giving us an encouraging answer. And that's our third point, isn't it? An encouraging answer. What is the encouraging answer? Verse 9. He says, if she is a wall, if this little sister is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of of cedar. Now, this is an interesting answer, an encouraging answer, an encouraging answer because Jesus shows that he is ready to work with us on this, that he's ready and willing to help us. He answers immediately and warmly. When wives ask their husbands in this world about, you know, how could, we, how could we help our little sister? You know, she's got a younger sister and she's wanting to do something good for her. And, you know, sometimes women will be very good at loving their little sister and they want to do something to help her in some way. They often get a bit of resistance from their husband when they say that. He says, uh, well, why does she need our help? <laughs> why can't she do that? What's, what's wrong with her? And uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't really want to, to get involved. Jesus doesn't respond like that, does he? Or, uh, well, I don't know. You... you you can do what you want. You figure it out. Not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus isn't like that at all. Look at how he picks up on the we language. He doesn't say, well, you could. <laughs> I've, I've probably done that before. You could. No, he says, we will build. We will enclose. We are not left alone then to lead others to maturity. If we were left alone to lead others to maturity, we might as well not even bother trying. We couldn't do a thing. You know, this is, it's very good that we're not left on our own. It gives us hope of success. He is with us, working by his grace, sending forth his spirit to work in us and in those, the little sister that we're ministering to. Did he not assure us of this when he sent us out to bring the world to maturity in him? To, teach, to, to preach the gospel and baptize them and teach them to observe all things that he had commanded, bring them all the way to maturity? Did Jesus not promise when he said that, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? I, that, that's, that's our encouragement and our hope that he says, we will do this. We will, we will build, we will enclose. You remember Moses? We talked about this not long ago. He refused to go to the promised land. When the Lord said, I'm not going to go with you because these people are stiff-necked and I'm going to destroy them if I go. I'm afraid I might destroy them if I go. And Moses said, nope, not going unless you go. That's what distinguishes us from all the other nations is that we have your presence. If you're not there, there's no difference between this nation and all the other nations. I've got no interest in going unless you go. And then the Lord said, okay, I'll go. And of course, the Lord is planning to do that the whole time. But he wanted Moses to intercede. We learned something from that. Because if we're going out and we don't see the hand of God and we don't see the Lord working, maybe it's in our parenting. Maybe it's in our ministry to, to other people in the church and we don't see Christ's work going on, then we need to go and pray and say, Lord, you must go with us. You must bless our work. You must pour out your spirit. And we plead with him and we intercede in that way. It honors him. Because what are we doing? We're leaning on him and recognizing that we can do nothing without him. Jesus' answer then is encouraging because he promises to help us. He, re- he receives our question and he says, we will do this. 
Now, Jesus' answer is also encouraging because he presents a wise plan. He tells us that we will find our little sister. We have to have a kind of an evaluation here. And we will find the one that we have determined to be a mature little sister who has no breasts. We've already determined that. We've already noted that. But then we'll note another, we need to note another thing here that sometimes she may be like a wall and other times she may be like a door. And he says, you deal a little bit differently. What, what is the difference between a wall and a door? Well, that's not complicated, is it? Can I go through the wall? No, I can't. Can I go through the door? Yes. The door, I can go in. The wall keeps me out. That's the difference. So uh, keep in mind that like us, this bride is complex, okay? The bride is complex. She's part of the bride, but she's the immature part of the bride. So that's one difference. There's different members, but also among the immature part, there's the ones that are like a wall and there's the ones that are like a door. There's, there's differences among them. And uh, so these are all elect people that haven't reached maturity yet. Jesus makes no assumptions about her that she's you know, eager that she's in, in the right space. This is talking about her chastity. And she may have some issues. Now, what is chastity? I mentioned that not too long ago. We probably need to repeat that. Chastity is where you're devoted to faithfully to the one husband. Or where before that, you're waiting until the, the one comes along. Or one wife, either way. But... Um, Chastity is full devotion to him as her one and only husband. The Bible often speaks of Christ betrothed people doing what? Running after other gods. Trusting in Egypt. Trusting in Assyria to deliver. Who does that? Those who are betrothed. The professing people of God. The ones who are immature. Turning to idols for help, changing the truth of God and, and so that there, it's a distortion of God, an idolatrous version of God, or going after Baal or some other God. Now, you say, oh, the betrothed, the people of God do that? Yes. If, if you don't know about that, then I would encourage you to read the book of Judges. And when you've done that, read the book of Kings. And when you've done that, read the book of Chronicles. And when you've done that, read Isaiah. And when you've done that, read Hosea. When you've done that, look at the teachings of Jesus and the warnings that he gives about going after others. Read the epistle of John where he concludes the whole thing with the words, little children, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And where James, we looked at this recently in a sermon about covetousness, where he says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's talking to God's people. And then in Revelation, what do we have? The harlot, the one who departs from him, from her one husband. Sometimes our little sister may be very faithful, and sometimes she may not. You can have a brand new believer who is just absolutely committed and on track. They are like a wall. Like, they're not going to go after something else. They're just hungry for everything that the Lord gives them. And you just, you know, you, you feed them and encourage them. Again, contrast Israel with Moses and Israel with Joshua. 
With Joshua, they were a wall. They weren't coming into the nations and saying, oh, look, there's, look, look at these Canaanite gods. I would like to have that, that, um, that altar there to, to, to worship Baal or you know, whatever. They, no, they were destroying those. But, it, but in the wilderness, somebody comes along and leads them astray. Somebody's complaining. Somebody's envious. Whatever. Contrast Galatia. Exchanged the gospel for legalism. They were like a door. They let legalism come in. Who has bewitched you? We read that before. Why are you trusting in that instead of in the one and only Savior? Contrast Galatia with Philadelphia that's mentioned in uh, the book of Revelation. They also had the same temptation with those who were a synagogue, but he says are really actually a synagogue of Satan. They were Judaizers that had come to them, and they were like a wall. They weren't interested in the Judaizers. There was no door there for those Judaizers. Contrast the Hebrews, who wavered like a door with maybe we'll go over here. Maybe we'll let this in. Maybe we'll follow that. Maybe we'll go back to our old ways with the Thessalonians, who received the gospel with much affliction and yet continued on in the Lord. They were like, a, the, the Thessalonians were a wall. The Hebrews were more like a door. We who are mature have to deal then with the little sister who is sometimes a wall and sometimes a door. We see that with our children too, don't we? We want to teach her, the little, our little sister, to lean on Jesus alone coming out of the wilderness, to come out of the wilderness, leaning on Jesus alone, to leave the world of sin and death, leaning on Jesus. Jesus Jesus tells us what we must do in his excellent answer. We and him together, of course, as we've already seen. He says, if she is a wall, build her up. Make her stronger. Put a battlement on there. You know, build, build it up, a silver battle, battlement. This is a good thing. Encourage her in being a wall. Strengthen her, adorn her. Encourage her to press on. Remind her of her hope and her goal to strengthen it even more. That she would become more firm and more grounded and more solid in her doctrine. Build her up. She's hungry. Feed, feed, feed. Give her more and more so that she becomes strong and mature. Feed her with the word of life that she may be blessed and strengthened as a wall. That she may understand even more why she should resist all of that false teaching. Show her the way of the Lord. Ground her in the ways of the Lord. If she's a door, and Jesus says, enclose her with boards of cedar that won't rot. You know, boards that are strong. Admonish her to put away her idols. Something we see in the scripture again and again. Put away your idols. You know, uh, think about Elijah. You know, how long will you, will you falter between two opinions? How long will you sit on the fence? If the Lord is God, serve him at Baal then serve him. Warn her of her danger. If you go this way, it will lead to ruin and destruction. You're going to bring destruction on yourself and on your household. You'll you'll, you'll be uh, cut yourself off. No, go after her. 
right? Leave what we read in, in Matthew 18. Leave the 99 and go after the one that went astray. This is an urgent thing. You've got to make sure that she doesn't go after whatever it is that she's going after. Call her back, this little sister. And of course, when I'm talking about the little sister, you know it's not just women we're talking about. We're talking about, uh, the, we're talking about the bride, so it's the female. But it's brothers and sisters, isn't it? Sons and daughters that we're talking about. Go after her. Leave the 99. Rebuke her. And lead her to repentance. Take someone with you. Follow that process. Bring her before the church. Do whatever you can do to bring her and lead her to repentance. To make a door there. To close in so that she's not going out after heresy and after deceptions and lies in the world. Following the world and the leaning on the governors of the world. The rulers of this world. Leaning on wealth and riches and uh, uh, her education and whatever it might be that she's leaning on. Jesus uses warning and teaching in order to keep his people chaste. Paul says what we read before, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What is Paul doing there? He's putting up cedar boards and saying, you need to stick with Christ. Do not let someone else come along and lead you astray. If He says, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You people are in danger. You're like an open door to this stuff. Every wind of doctrine that comes along, that you're in danger of being blown away. His goal, what was Paul's goal? Colossians 1, 27 through 29. He says, to them God willed to make known what are the riches, he's talking about the Gentiles, what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is you leaning upon Christ and Christ your husband caring for you and saving you and bringing you out of the wilderness. Christ in you, the hope of glory, bringing you from the wilderness into his house of his father. And then Paul says, what does Paul do? Him, Jesus Christ, we preach, warning every man. Okay, that would be speaking especially about boarding up the, 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 the door, right? Warning every man. Don't, don't let these come in here and take you away or don't go in to them. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. We're strengthening the wall. We're fortifying the wall. We're grounding them in the word of truth that we may present, he says, every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That word perfect can be translated mature, complete, whole in Jesus Christ. From immaturity to maturity. How do we do it? We're ministering the word to them. Paul says, this is my goal. To this end, he says, I labor. I work hard, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. There it is. He doesn't do it alone. 
See, all of it is there. He's doing it with Christ, leaning on Him. He can't do it alone. We will build. We will put the boards on. We will enclose. This is the work that belongs to the whole church. This is Matthew 28 in, in action. Discipling the nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all the ways of the Lord. It's a work that belongs to all of us together as a body with Jesus. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building, the building up, right, of the body of Christ. Till we all come to maturity, to unity in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what it's about, coming to know Jesus, who He is, how He saves, to a what? Perfect man, a mature, complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we're like Christ, that we should no longer be what? Children, right? We go from immaturity to maturity. Children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Let's put a wall up so that wind... I was glad I had walls the other day when it was that cold blast came. I was glad I had walls to protect from the wind and I was glad that the door wasn't open, that it was boarded up because it would have been miserable without it. No longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. They can be very clever in the way that they present their truth. They can be very enticing as they present it and package it to us. Come, come, this will make it easy. You know, this is what you need. This will fix you. This will be every, this is everything you need. Here's the shortcut. Don't look for it to come just from there. You need this also. I remember that with the with gospel, you know, when I as, as a young preacher and I was told, oh, yeah, well, the Bible's important and the method that is given in the Bible is important for building the church. But if you add these marketing principles, this will help you to really flourish. In the, very enticing, right? Come, come, just come through this door here. I've got something else that, that you can use that will help you. Trickery of men, cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. You remember that phrase, truthing in love is literally what it, what it is, that we, we just speak and live and everything is truthing in love, may grow up in all things in him. Huh? Grow up, grow up from immaturity to maturity, grow up in him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole bride, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, we're all connected with each other as one bride according to the effect of working by which every part does its share. Okay, the ones that are mature teach and lead the ones who are less mature and uh, we all work together in, in the work of the Lord. Every part does its share causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We all have roles to play. The ministers bring the word and exhort with uh, preaching, preaching the word of God faithfully to the congregation. Then the elders join with the ministers in 
admonishing people to apply the word, warning them and helping them, setting an example to them of, of following the, the way of the Lord and the word. And then the deacons, they lead the people in service. I always tell our deacons, it's not just you that does the service. You're to help other people to facilitate service that they do to f- help them to you know see needs that they can go and and minister here or minister over there to to get people active in that sort of thing and in giving and in providing and doing all kinds of different work like that very important work and women women are to their their mothers in the church they're spiritual mothers we talked about the women in titus before that teach the younger women to love their husbands to love their children it's practical teaching it's not not a Bible study there. The, the word of God is brought by the ministers and so on. But, but then not that they don't use the word, but, but they're, they're showing them that how can we love our husbands? How can we care for our children? Leading them and guiding them in these things. We're to pray earnestly because all of this depends on Christ. We go with him. We don't go alone, as we've said. How eager we ought to be then to see our little sister grow to maturity. Go without relenting to help her. Acts 14, 21 through 23, we read of Paul when they, he and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that particular city and made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They returned there, places they'd been before where the gospel had been believed. What did they, why did they go back? Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Strengthening the wall, Right? Strengthening the door, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, he appointed those who were mature to lead those who were less mature. He appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting. They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Remember that, again, that Paul could not stay away from the Thessalonians. He had to get to them. He had had to go away because of persecution, and he got busy with all these other things that he was called to do. He kept thinking about, we got to go back, we got to go back, we got to go back. And then finally, he could stand it no more, he said, and so I sent Timothy to you. And Timothy came to encourage them and to exhort them in the way of the Lord. He says, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, to be deprived of Timothy, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, to the suffering. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means, what's he concerned about? The door. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Because the tempter came and carried you away from Christ, the virgin, the the, the husband that I betrothed you to as a chaste virgin. So you see that the scripture is full of what we have looked at today. It's talking about helping our little sister to be a chaste virgin of Jesus Christ. And there is hope for this, isn't there? Because what does the bride say at the very end of our 
text that we read today in, in verse 10. She says, I am a wall and my breasts like towers. Why is she saying that in this context? Because she's saying, I have come to maturity. That's why I'm concerned about my little sister, because she doesn't have any breasts. My breasts are like towers, because I've been leaning on Christ, and I've grown, and I'm mature now. I'm a mature bride who who knows my Lord and knows where I'm going and knows my hope, and I want to help her to be like that, you see. And, And she's also saying, I'm a wall. Like, I'm not a door. I'm a wall now. Yes, she is mature, and she knew that she was mature, and so she wants to help other people to be mature. We may be tempted to give up, but there is hope. How is our hope? Well, if he could bring any of you to maturity, he can bring anyone else to maturity, can't he? That gives us encouragement to go forward. It's so easy to, to become discouraged. We say, well, what, what difference can I make? I won't, I won't be able to help. I won't be able to do anything that's really useful. We need to learn from, from the fishermen. You know, the fisherman fishes and he says, oh, I don't know, I probably won't even catch anything. And he tries and he doesn't catch anything. He tries again, he still doesn't catch anything. But he, he keeps on casting his line. Eventually he gets a fish. Salesman, same thing. You make a couple of calls and say, I'm not going to do any more today. I'm not going to do anything tomorrow. And you go on like that. You're not, you're not going to make any sales. You've got to keep on going, don't you? Well, why do we do this so easily with helping other people to grow? Well, I, I'm not really much of a help. I'm not able to do it. Do what you can. That's what the Lord calls you to do. Cup of cold water. Minister with the gifts that God has given you and use them to the glory of God without, without giving up, without discouragement, because it's important. It's a great thing to observe that there are people that need to grow. Do you see that? There are people that are immature. And so then you say to the Lord, Lord, what can we do to help our little sister that has no breasts? What can we do? And then he tells you. So go forth with whatever your gifts are. There there will be fruit. Sometimes it may not be in the person you're ministering to. But if you're doing this, you're going to grow and be encouraged. And not only that but you will also help other people without even realizing it. Other believers that are around you and see you doing what you can. They will be strengthened and encouraged by that because, you see, it's, it's sort of like this. Okay, you're there ministering to people and you're, you're thinking, oh man, and then the person goes away. You know, somebody that you've really poured, I've had that happen a lot in ministry. Someone that I just, you know, I met with them like 25 times and then they, they're a door. You know, and some temptation, they're gone. Gone. And it's, it can be very discouraging and make you want to give up. But in ministering to those people, you are also helping other people without even realizing it that see you ministering, and maybe they're ministering to someone that is helped. There's all kinds of different connections and things because we're all a body, and we all work together, and we do our work. But if, if some of us are not, if we're not doing what we can, and we don't care, we, we don't give a cup of cold water that we can give, we don't, we don't want to be bothered, then we're, going to be, we're not going to be appropriately encouraging others. We're to care about our little sister. The duty belongs 
to us. The response belongs to the person that we minister to, and the success is in the hands of the Lord. So it's your task to do your duty. It's their responsibility to receive the blessing, and Christ is the one who makes it successful when it is His will to do so. Please stand, and let's call on the name of the Lord. Our gracious and merciful Father, how we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the blessing that we have through him as our husband. He is the one who came in the world to deliver us from the wilderness of this world, from death and sin, in order that we might be brought into your very house as God our Father. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ that all we are called to do is lean on him and that leaning on him that we will be delivered. And we pray, Father, that being delivered and seeing the, the faithfulness of Christ bringing us through the wilderness, bringing us out from the wilderness into your house, that, Father, as our hope increases and as our, our strength increases, Father, that we would more and more have a care for our little sister. We may be a little sister at the beginning. We are the little sister. But then we become someone who is able to minister to the little sister. And even when we are a little sister, we can minister to our our fellow little sister and even to our big sister. And Father, indeed, you've called us all to be engaged and involved in, in helping one another in the body, each part doing its share. And we pray, Father, that we would see this, that, 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 that we would have that, that burden for our little sister, that love for her because of our love for you, Lord, and wanting her to share in the joy that we have in our relationship with you as our husband. Father, we know that sometimes it actually helps when we maybe don't have that much joy in our walk with you, that when we start to go out and minister to others, that sometimes it helps to actually increase our joy. So we pray, Lord, that we would be creative in finding ways to love and to minister to those that are around us, and that we would do it in a way that is a, a, real, a real help and blessing, but not in a way that is contrary to your word, not something that we come up with that's not true to, to your holy word. Father, thank you so much for, for the blessing that we have as members of the body of Christ as being the bride of Christ. Please bless us now as we come to the table. Encourage and refresh us there, Lord. Have communion with us, for that is what we're getting ready to do, is have communion with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of the Lord our God. God be merciful to you and bless you and cause his face to shine upon you, that his way may be known on earth his salvation among all nations. Amen.